This week on the show, we have two to the power of $18 to open source, EuroBSDCon 2023 trip reports, FreeBSD versus Linux, Debian, but less of a bad comp- comparison, more like a nice pro and con, back and forth, introduction to SysClean, run your own SyncThings discovery server on OpenBSD, FreeBSD years 2000 and 2005, and how formative they were, using OpenBSD RelayD as an application layer gateway, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 532, the 2 to the power of $18 sponsorship, recorded on the 26th of October 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. We have new episode content for you like every week, and it's always interesting. And this first headline here is also about the show a little bit, uh, as you are going to see. Uh, it starts off with the title, Two to the Power of $18 to Open Source by Colin Percival. And Colin Percival is not uh, an unknown person in the BSD space. Uh, for those people who listen to our advertising, uh, have heard his name many, many times. So he's the person behind Tarsnap. And that's what this article is also about. So Tarsnap has given two to the power of $18 to open source. And Colin details here in this blog post of his uh, where this all went to. So Colin goes, yesterday I read a great article from Sentry entitled, We Just Gave 500 thousand to open source maintainers and that is also linked if you want to read that article first and it made him wonder just how much tarsnap had spent on supporting open source software over the years ever since december 2009 tarsnap has spent 100 percent of its december operating profits on supporting open source software which since uh, needs for open uh, for support aren't limited to December means that Tarsnap hands out money throughout the year and at the end of the year when he knows how much profit Tarsnap made in December he sends whatever is left in the budget for the to the FreeBSD Foundation going through 14 years of accounting spreadsheets brought him to a total of two hundred seventy four thousand four hundred eighty two dollars that's Canadian dollars for him or in binary terms slightly over two to the power of eighteen dollars. Wow. Oh, US dollars there. Okay. So this one is now uh, to the power of 18 US dollars. Because Tarsnap is a Canadian company, as is going to be uh, mentioned later. But uh, this one is US dollars. Okay. So the largest recipient of this funding every year has been the FreeBSD Foundation. And today they have received $173,920. It's hard yet to overstate or uh, the importance of the work the foundation does. It's, uh, that's very true. They provide hardware which keeps the FreeBSD project running. They fund a myriad of independent projects and they have full-time developers to go through uh, or who get thrown in to fix whatever needs to be fixed from time to time. 
So while FreeBSD is unusual among open source projects in that the FreeBSD project governance is entirely independent of the FreeBSD Foundation, the FreeBSD project would be immeasurably worse off without the support of the FreeBSD Foundation. The second largest recipient of support from Tarsnap has been the BSD Now podcast, that's us, which has received $47,500 to date. Wow, and very much thank you to Colin Percival for that. Now, at our 529th episode, at the time of his writing, of course, this is episode 532, uh, they fill an important niche in the BSD world, being one of the only places people can hear what's going on across all the BSD operating systems. That's true. So we try to be as wide in the BSD space as possible. As developers, we're generally lousy at communication, and while technical journalists like Pharonix sometimes support on things happening in the BSD world, they generally lack the technical knowledge to be consistently accurate. BSD now, being produced by actual developers, bridges the two solitudes. Oh, that's nice. That's certainly nice. And yeah, again, thank you, Colin, for supporting this show uh, with little money. Third comes BSD Can, which has received 23188 to date, in addition to being in Canada, which, as a Canadian, uh, he has at to admit influences him somewhat. BSD Can is the largest BSD conference in the world and plays an essential role in bringing together developers to discuss and learn about each other's work. Email and RC are great, but sometimes face-to-face -face conversations make a huge difference. Yeah, I think that everyone who, who has been to BSD Can at least once will underscore that this is a, definitely a worthwhile conference to be at. Next comes the annual FreeBSD Developer Summit held at BSDCAN. So they piggyback on BSDCAN in the sense that they can take advantage of the fact that BSDCAN is already getting a lot of people to travel to one spot, but BSDCAN does not pay for the rooms, uh, audio video equipment, coffee, or any of the other miscellaneous costs associated with running a developer summit. Tarsnap has contributed $11,062 to those over the years. While most of the money Tarsnap contributes to open source software is focused in the BSD world, that's what Tarsnap uses, it, all, it also does provide funding for an annual award at his alma mater for students who contribute to open source software, and to date Tarsnap has contributed 7839 to this. Well, that's also a great idea to support students this way. Finally, there's a bunch of miscellaneous sponsorships, conferences, developers, travel grants, etc., adding up to 10,972. 10, or maybe a bit more, there was a lot of these and he might have missed some while he was putting together the list. Ah, that's fine. Tarsnaps, two to the power of $18 of financial support for open source software over the past 14 years is only a drop in the bucket compared to what is needed, he writes. And indeed, he wishes he could contribute more or we actually, like not just he, but many other people, uh, Tarsnap would not exist without all of the open source software it runs on. On the other hand, maybe it's not a bad total for a two-person company. Oh yeah, not at all by any stretch. There are certainly much larger companies which contribute f far less. Yeah. That's also true. If you're a startup which relies heavily on open source software, please take a moment to ask yourself how much does your company contribute back? And there were a couple of comments there, uh, mostly chiming in and thanking Colin for his contributions over the years. Yes, thanks, Colin. Uh, you know, your contributions to all the different aspects, uh, not just this podcast, but the FreeBSD Foundation, uh, BSD Can, uh, and the others that you mentioned in this, uh, this has opened up my eyes as well. Uh, I didn't realize, you know, as a private company, you know, you're not you're not uh, subjected to having to put this publicly. So you didn't have to provide us this, but it is a good insight into uh, what you do and your ethics 
as an organization uh, do in in the open source space. So thank you. Yeah, and Colin also is a developer who does a lot of work on uh, AWS, uh, FreeBSD running on AWS, and that's also uh, very appreciative. Or his work on the bootloader to increase the boot boot time, not the, the actual time it boots, but making it uh, actually quicker to boot. Uh, that's also appreciated by a lot of people. All right, next up. Moving on to a EuroBSDCon 2023 trip report with Bjorn Novich. Sorry, I've, I've butchered your name. Um, it's uh, That's on me, Jason. So <laughs> this uh, is an article on the FreeBSD Foundation's page in their blog uh, dated uh, 20th of October 2023. This year, I had great privilege of receiving the 3BSD Foundation Travel Grant to attend EuroBSDCon in Cumbria, Portugal. I arrived in Cumbria on the 13th of September and headed to the FreeBSD Developer Summit the following morning. The schedule for the first day of the summit was busy. After attending the opening session and catching up on the latest news from the FreeBSD Foundation team, I met with Mark Johnston to review and commit some leftover patches from this year's Google Summer of Code program. After a short lunch break in the nearby student cafeteria, I attended Sergio's talk about the new FreeBSD org website design. Later, Greg Wallace introduced the concept of SWOT analysis and organized an interactive session. We split up into smaller groups and brainstormed about the project's strengths, weaknesses, and so on. The last session of the day was and Jordan Hubbard's talk about the early history of the FreeBSD project, intertwined with his personal history with the project. Unfortunately, my talk was moved to the next day, so after the last talk, I had a discussion with Li Huin about using the work I intended to present for performance regression testing in FreeBSD's CI loop. The next day at the Developer Summit kicked off with the talk about my ongoing effort to build a performance benchmarking framework meant for testing kernel patches. The idea was well received and the subsequent discussion with other developers was insightful. Afterward, I attended Ruslan's talk about HWT, a hardware performance tracing framework for FreeBSD. After the talk, I met up with Ruslan to discuss the steps for adding Intel performance tracing supports to HWT. This marked the end of the lightning talks and after a short lunch break, I paired up with Christos Magios for a hacking session that lasted well into the afternoon. The following day started with a keynote from Paula Alexandra Silvia. After the keynote, I attended the talk by Walter Bergers to hear various stories and anecdotes from the early histories of the BSDs. The next session was by Otto Morbeck on OpenBSD's malloc. It was a great honor to attend a lecture by a pioneer of security heap memory allocators, and the talk was packed with details and insights on mechanisms that heap allocators use to prevent malicious abuse from common C memory management mistakes during runtime. After taking the family photo outside the venue and taking a short lunch break, I attended Hiroki Sato's session about USB debugging capability. Talk was excellent, and I'm excited about having a new way of debugging live machines since the usual way of doing this using serial ports is no longer possible on modern hardware. 
After the talk, I paired up with Christos for a short hacking session. Then I attended Toshan's talk on running FreeBSD on the power architecture. The day ended with a great social event at an EVI venue. The second day started with Philip Bueller's excellent talk about EuroBSD Con's history. Afterward, I attended Eric Verbe's talk to hear about Modurium's latest adventures. The next session was Christo's talk about Kinst, a new dtrace provider that allows tracing arbitrary instructions. He described the general architecture of his approach and some common use cases and stirred an interesting and lengthy technical discussion with the audience. After this, I attended Kirk's talk about G-Union. The talk was really interesting as it provided a great overview of Geom and several useful applications of G-Union. The next session I attended was Yan K. Chu's talk about his ongoing work developing the OCI-capable FreeBSD container runtime. The talk was packed with great short demos and showcased the runtime's features. I'm deeply grateful for the FreeBSD Foundation for enabling me to attend this conference. It was a great experience that allowed me to connect with other members of the FreeBSD community and discuss future work. It also sounded like he uh, committed quite a bit of code there as well and uh, worked with others to uh, you know, plot his course for the next lot of work he's doing. So, yeah, that's a great article. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, good vibes that you get from the conference and a lot of more uh, ideas by talking to people or listening to the talks. It's certainly, uh, you get typically more work back from a conference than going to it. Uh, but you're excited with uh, new ideas, getting along and finding common people that have the same interests. That's, yeah, that's always very rewarding. Uh, next up, we have a FreeBSD versus Linux, in that this case Debian uh, comparison, but not like, oh, this one is better than the other, but more like, yeah, a general summary of what's good here, what's good there, without drawing too many uh, bad uh, conclusions there. So this is uh, on the blog of Mark McBride, and um, it's part of a longer series. You can find um, other articles or similar articles like installation, boot process, boot environments and stuff on the left navigation pane. But this one is uh, the summary comparison and goes like this. Several features of FreeBSD have contributed to me preferring FreeBSD over Linux. Each on its own may not be a big deal, but together they create an experience I enjoy. I still make use of Linux. It's excellent too. So yeah, be, this is not, oh, this one is bad, this other is better. It, I think it's a fair comparison of strengths and weaknesses of both. So navigation. Rather than write one large piece, I've broken my thoughts into several articles that you can find in the navigation menu on the left. So you can use the links uh, provided below. Or if you want uh, just the too long didn't read parts, the points below hit the highlights. So reasons with details. FreeBSD is quick to install, twice as fast as Debian. They did some install tests and uh, compared the speed of installation, if you want to call it that, and found this to be better. Shutdown and boot are fast, several minutes difference between FreeBSD and Debian. So they did some performance bench benchmarks here. And then there's always the question, and it's also mentioned in the article, how important is that or how often do you care about these things? But yeah, it's good to know certain uh, 
systems behave differently. The FreeBSD boot process is cohesive. Linux usually has two or three independent steps during boot that each have their own configuration and are not consistent between distributions. You'll likely be scouring the internet to figure out how to set up simple things like an SOL console. Okay, set of his boot environments. Every time you update FreeBSD, it snapshots the whole operating system. In Linux, it's common to be able to boot to a previous kernel, but in FreeBSD, you can revert the entire environment. Then there's the SES2 utility. If a disk fails, you want to quickly know the physical location of the device, ideally without shutting down the whole system. FreeBSD has a simple support for this in the base operating system. And then there's something SRIOV related that's uh, interesting because he provided a couple of things how to configure that. So SRIOV is a first-class feature. Hardware virtualization is more apparent in FreeBSD. There are dedicated tools for setup and those tools are well-documented and part of the OS. Uh, there's a good article about this uh, SRIOV, how you can configure that. And I find that interesting to uh, dig deeper on my own a little later. So if you're also in that camp, check out our show notes. We have that linked, of course, from the uh, article here by Mark. For straightforward reasons, other stuff that's cool about FreeBSD, but not enough to warrant a separate article on each. The release cadence is stable, like Debian, but its quarterly package releases are a bit more recent than what you'll find in Debian. The in-system docs, like man pages, are better. Many examples in the points above. Uh, there's the option to compile from source, and aside from doing it manually, advanced tools like Synth or Pudrier make it quite easy to do. There's uh, service management uh, in it. RC and service are simpler than systemd. Systemd is great, but I prefer the orientation toward do one thing well. And Mark likes also that he can see his services set up in one place, etcrc.conf. Managing jails is simple, similar to service management. He finds that it's easier to manage jails than Docker or LXD, LXC. Those technologies are awesome, but I love having everything in etcjails.conf and not tucked away behind an LXC config command. Okay. Separation of OS and user installed packages. It seems trivial, but having FreeBSD keep its configs in etc and me keep my configs in user local etc yep, makes things much more clear over time. Mostly it's clear everything in user local etc is my fault. <laughs> yeah. Or package installations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. ZFS is recent flexible. I'm a big fan of Linux's BTRFS because it's uh, because, because of its flexibility. It's still more flexible than ZFS, but recent versions made that less true by adding the ability to remove VDEFs and other things that you might want to do if you're a lowly home user and not a data center admin. And last, I like the logo. Yeah, that's personal. Okay, so check out uh, individual parts of this, uh, and I definitely will bookmark the SRIOV part because I think it uh, will speed up a couple of my systems as well because they have that and I haven't made use of that too much yet. Yeah, SRIOV, uh, I was uh, using it, uh, sort of playing around to see if it could work for us. It does work well with Beehive. So you can pass uh, like your IXL interfaces straight into beehive so you can have direct hardware access back to the network uh that that worked really well from a performance point of view because you tend to tap out with the the bridge tap configurations in beehive uh, but sriv gives you back that performance of of hardwire back to uh direct to your network the only downfall i found was there was bugs that would actually crash the kernel in the actual entry uh, driver, but the uh, Intel drivers that I had issues with uh, from 
using it from ports actually fix those particular problems. So that's just oh. some things to look out for. I haven't tried it for a couple of years now, so things might have changed. But um, yeah, SRIV is like once I was made aware of it and uh, to fix a few of my use cases I had at the time, uh, yeah, highly recommend it if you do need to have that uh, real network speed. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I wasn't aware about the config file etc iov and then your card name.conf and also there's a utility iov ctl so i definitely need to look into this more deeply and maybe document that somewhere maybe on the freebsd wiki uh, so that more people use it next up in the news roundup We've got a, a brief statement uh, over on OS News, uh, Introduction to Sysclean 8 on OpenBSD. So Sysclean is not part of the base system. It's actually something in uh, ports and packages. Uh, it's an optional thing for people to that are doing an installation that's outside of the uh, approved upgrade guide. Uh, in the upgrade guide, it usually tells you what files to remove after doing an upgrade uh, to clean up to keep, you know, prune your file system and keep it fresh, make sure you don't have any, uh, you know, uh, library files or anything else, binary files that are no longer required. Uh, and that could actually pose a bit of a security risk later on. Uh, Sysclean is a tool that automatically goes through your file system to generate a list uh, of files that are uh, no longer required on your system and can be removed. Uh, by default, it doesn't actually remove those files. It just provides a report. So then it's on you to remove those files. But anyway, back to the statement uh, over on OS News. Sysclean 8 is a system tool designed to help system administrators to keep their OpenBSD clean after an upgrade. It walks the installed system and compares to a reference system, reporting to the user additional things in the installed system. The purpose to is to point any elements that wouldn't be present if a fresh install was done on this system instead of just an upgrade. Uh, so the person that uh, wrote that uh, thinks it seems like a useful tool. Yes, yes it is. It is a very, very useful tool. Um, personally, these days I automate through Ansible to do that removal, but uh, it's good for generating a list on a test server so you can then plug that into Ansible to then go and clean up all your instances that are around the place after an upgrade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Knowing about these tools is halfway uh, of implementing them or using them in your own way. Okay, next up is run your own sync thing discovery server on OpenBSD and uh, another article by Celine who keeps blogging and we like that and that's why she keeps coming up in episodes. So here goes. Introductory part. In a previous article, I covered the software sync thing and mentioned a specific feature named Discovery Server. The Discovery Server is used to allow clients to connect each other through NUTs to help connect each other. This is not a relay server, which is a different service that serves as a proxy between clients. All right. A motivation to run your own discovery service would be for security, privacy, and performance reasons. So security-wise, using global service with the software synchronizing your data can be dangerous. If a remote exploit is found in the protocol, running your own server will reduce the risks. Privacy. Global servers know a lot about your client. If you sync online, time of activity, IP address, number of remote nodes, the ID of everyone involved, etc. 
And her specific use case, where she has two Cubes OS computers with multiple sync things inside, they can see each other as they are in separate networks, and she doesn't want to have the data to go through her slow ADSL to sync locally. Ah, okay, another good reason. Let's see how to install your own sync thing, discovery daemon on OpenBSD. Uh, she links to the documentation, so you can read there. And I guess you can apl apply or adapt these uh, to other operating systems as well. So she starts off with package adding sync thing, fairly straightforward. The relay service is done by the binary strv, so this discovery service, fairly easy. You need to create a service file to enable it at boot. You can use the sync thing service file as a template for the new one. So she shows a set line to replace uh, these uh, in the config file. Fairly easy with a one-liner. Next, you create a service named SyncThing underscore discovery. It's time to enable and start it. Yeah, she's using RCCTL enable SyncThing underscore discovery for that. Then you need to retrieve the line server device is XXX whatever. From the output, keep the ID, which is the XXX whatever part, because we will need to reuse it later. We will start the service in debug mode to display the binary output in the terminal. That's rcctl-d to have debug output. Make sure your firewall is correctly configured to let pass incoming connections on TCP port 8443 used by the discovery daemon. All right, on to the client configuration. On the client web UI, click on the actions and settings to open the settings panel. In the connections tab, you need to change the value of global discovery servers from default to your IP port 8443, which you just opened, and uh, then the ID that you were provided, where the IP is the IP address uh, of the discovery daemon is running on the service, and ID is the value retrieved at the previous step in running the daemon. Yeah. Depending on your use case, you may want to have the global discovery server plus yours. It's possible to use multiple servers, in which case you would use the value default, comma, and then your own HTTPS address. She concludes with, if you change the default discovery server by your own, make sure that all the peers can reach it, otherwise your SyncThing clients may not be able to connect to each other. And going further, by default, discovery daemon will generate self-signed certificates. You could use a Let's Encrypt certificate if you prefer. There are some other options like Prometheus exports for getting metrics for changing the connection ports. You will find all the extra options in the documentation in that page. Cool. Yeah, sync. Sync thing was one of the things that I've had on my list of things to do for many, many years. I haven't mm. got around to it at all. So uh, it doesn't look so complicated when you look at uh, this blog post. Yeah. And with a previous post about it, uh, I think it's fairly straightforward to have a little test set up. Uh, moving over to Frederick Canbus's blog. Uh, my free BSD years, 2000 to 2005. In the introduction of my Why OpenBSD post, I mentioned that I came to the BSD world through FreeBSD. Rather than paraphrasing what I wrote back then, here is the relevant part. Quote, I've been using FreeBSD from 2000 to 2005 as my sole operating system at the time, both on servers and workstations from 4.1 to the end of the 4.x series. I have fond memories of that period and that probably the main reason why I've been diving again into the BSDs during the last few years, end quote. I started using FreeBSD in September 2000, coming from Slackware Linux, not knowing it would be the beginning of a more than 20 years journey. At the time, I still don't have broadband internet access, so downloading ISOs over dial-up connection was not an option. 
I'm not exactly sure how I got the FreeBSD 4.1 installation CD from, but I think I might have ordered it from Icarios, a French distributor of Linux and BSD distribution CDs. Having spent a large part of the 90s immersed in text mode on MS-DOS, mostly because of my involvement in the BBS and anti-art scenes, it's only natural that I kept the habit of using text consoles on Linux. On the hardware I was using at the time, I was often hitting a random issue causing the machine to become unstable when switching between text consoles and the X server. Switching back and forth between X and text consoles was such an important use case for me at the time that I was willing to try everything in order to fix the problem. Luckily, FreeBSD didn't exhibit the issue and as added benefit, the FreeBSD console could display anti-art with CAT in full glory, out of the box. One could connect to Telnet BBSs using the system Telnet client and enjoy an MS-DOS-like experience. FreeBSD provided many other benefits, but mostly importantly, a clean and well-integrated system. The quality of the documentation made things a lot easier than the Linux world. Configuring IPFW was a breeze compared to what was available on Linux at the time. Being able to tweak and compile kernels using a single text configuration file was also a powerful thing. And I remember spending an unhealthy amount of time compiling the smallest possible working kernels in order to save RAM and compile time. FreeBSD also offered a great platform for C development with quality manual pages documenting the C library. It thus won't come as a surprise that I'd learned a lot about Unix systems during that period. I also started contributing to the ports collection, BabyTrans, DTC, GSFV, HUC, Multimail, Tetrador, and even doing some evangelizing on Linux FR, a community-driven social news site for the release of FreeBSD 4.1 and 6.0. Ultimately, by 2005, software was getting larger, especially browsers, so compiling ports was not a practical anymore and binary packages were still a bit of a hit and miss on FreeBSD at the time. The FreeBSD 5 series was unfortunately plagued by unreliability issues, which prompted me to go and explore other shores. My BSD story was to be continued a few years later anyway. Little did I know at that time. Cool, yeah. Nice to know the history. Well, IPFW, there's not been much of a change between um, you know, Linux's firewalls, and I can guarantee you IPFW is still a breeze compared to you know the uh, Linux firewalls. You know, they've had so many wrappers around uh, what they have at the kernel layer, uh, whereas FreeBSD, OpenBSD, NetBSD, and Dragonfly BSD have you know got various firewall options in them and none of them are really hard to deal with from a day-to-day operational point of view. Yeah, and so that makes it easy to first maintain those and keep uh, configurations simple and understandable. Uh, that also ties nicely into the next part about using OpenBSD's RelayD as an application layer gateway. So that has been uh, presented at EuroBSDCon 2023 as a talk, and that has been recorded and is also available already on the EuroBSDCon YouTube channel. But this website is basically um, attempting a reboot of the slides uh, to a more browser-friendly format so that people can read it in one go. So what is RelayD, people ask sometimes. Uh, it's a multi-purpose daemon available at BSD since 4.3, so quite a while. Remember last week's episode had 
4 available, so it's been around for a while. It is a load balancer, an application layer gateway, and a transparent proxy, capable of monitoring groups of hosts for high availability, and can operate as layer 3, redirection via communication with PF, or layer 7, and or layer 7, relaying with application level filtering via itself. So he has a picture there, uh, so the user interactively works with browser or some mobile device that connects to PF. PF forwards the request to RelayD, and RelayD forwards the request itself to backend servers that are running HTTPD and does, as mentioned, load balancing, application layer gateway, or a transparent proxy. How to manage RelayD? Uh, man pages are must read before proceeding further. So there's relayd, relayd.conf, and relayd, uh, relayctl config files or config man pages. And once you've been through those, the configuration file is expected in the standard etc directory. Example is available if you need more inspiration. So you can either um, use that and remove sections or copy that and make your own changes. Uh, one can check for configuration errors using relayd-dvn. So the V probably stands for uh, verbose, so you can see the actual errors. And the service is enabled and started using the standard RCCTL utility. So you enable RelayD, start RelayD, and stop RelayD this way. And a dedicated command can be used to get more information about RelayD state and apply specific actions. So you go RelayCTL, then the command and the arguments to each of those. The terminology, there are macros, user-defined variables that can be used later on. Yes, that's similar to PF macros. So since the same people um, invent, uh, invented that uh, or reused it from PF's config file or language so they didn't reinvent the wheel so many of these concepts are similar same is true for tables host or groups uh, of hosts defining tr traffic targets protocols self-explanatory settings and filter rules for relays and the relays itself layer 7 proxying instances there's a simple example the simplest http relay that you can do uh, that's basically HTTP section and a relay section, like where to listen on and what kind of protocols you are accepting and where this should be forwarded to. And these are more uh, detailed explained in the text. And of course, if you watch the talk and see the slides, you have a bit more information there. Then there's a better simple HTTP relay. The next example expands the previous HTTP reverse proxy config with using uh, reusable variables. So first was more static, and now it's more macro-filled, so you can re reference those in multiple sections of the config file, and logging of state changes in remote connections, because you don't want to know what's going on. Then a uh, common example is to encrypt the HTTP relay using transport layer security, TLS, right? You want to have encrypted HTTPS connections, and that um, is shown in the next part. You have all the instructions and the config lines in the article, but it's just not making much sense to read them out loud here. So we just uh, give it a general overview. And that way you can... Uh, you know, proxy the SSL commands, so to backend servers that are not SSL enabled, and the RelayD will provide the connection encrypted for you and pass that back and forth to the backend servers. Then there's load balancing examples and failover examples in case you have multiple, like web hosts, like three of them in this example, and RelayD will make sure to distribute the incoming requests to several backend servers so that each one doesn't get overloaded and individual servers handle the load among themselves. 
Depending on this configuration, you can balance the load on those servers and or keep the service up and running since you only encountered N-1 failures, right? And the other ones are still unaffected. Fallback servers, uh, automatic switch, for example. There are cases when you want to implement automatic reaction on servers, outages events. You may want to switch the page or the whole service even to a secondary server pool. You may display an incident status page rather than a 500 error page. You should probably display a static be back soon page while performing maintenance. And that's another example that's shown here. You also have a way to manually switch to fallback servers if you want to do that. And a couple more examples further down, as well as relaying multiple FQDNs, for example, relaying multiple path names. So a lot of things can be done with RelayD, and each one is described here. Are you using RelayD? I'm fairly sure you are. No. No, um, you don't? No. Not yet. We, we tend, we, yeah, we tend to use Nginx mm. for a lot of the stuff that we do. Uh, for from a relay perspective, there is probably one project that we had at work that probably RelayD would have would have worked for, but there's also a point where I have to sort of you know hold myself back and um, make sure that you know we're using software that can be supported by others. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, inside an organization, uh, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily use the best tool for the job because you've got to you know go for the lowest common denominator so you know uh real id has it has some really 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 good fe features and uh some of these features are actually paid features in uh like nginx pro so um yeah you know if you've got a particular uh project that uh requires a reverse proxy of some sort or a proxy or a relay agent um you know give RelayD a look at, you know, there's some really good features in there like conditional filtering now. Hmm. Um, so uh, this document goes into, you know, all different facets of, of RelayD. So, yeah. Um, yeah, check it out. Yeah, and the config language is just, if you've done the PF config of, uh, of sorts, then it's fairly familiar to uh, see these and understand what it's going on, what it's doing, just reading the config file. Yeah, right, when they did the... Did this he also did the um HCPD um part as well um as relay D. So a lot of a lot of this flows over from mm. a configuration point of view. So it's a lot easier for for people to move between different software stacks um to achieve what they need to achieve without having to relearn a whole different block set again. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> I like that. All right, uh, moving into the beastie bits, little nuggets and pieces we found on the web, definitely worth mentioning. Uh, the first one is how to send syslog messages to using or via using the command line utilities. So in case you want to do so some testing. Yeah, so preliminary information is that first read RFC 3164, the BSD syslog protocol, and RFC 4524, the syslog protocol, as these RFC documents are crucial to understand the behavior of syslog protocol. Uh, so this breaks down this document so that it's a, well this blog post breaks down the different aspects of uh, calculating the formula to uh, message a certain thing uh, within syslog so you've got your different you know you've got your kernel messages user messages mail log mail system messages moving into you know you see local one local two local three mentioned uh, within syslog uh, so it it talks about how to calculate um, those codes that you see. Um, so if you've got a misconfigured 
the syslog server, you might see a code rather than the the proper uh, uh, identifier for what you like, you know, info to, for example, you might see a code instead and that's because it's not being interpreted properly at the, the end, end source. So um, this blog post sort of goes into uh, how to test your you know, syslog, for example, by just using the command line, and it's actually it's it's good a good thing to put in your toolkit. Uh, I've actually uh, was just dealing with this um, with uh, syslog ng recently. So uh, if I'd known this, this might have actually saved me a bit of time. But uh, I got that sorted out pretty good. It was just a config issue I had in so syslog ng. It wasn't really too much, but this uh, helps people, you know test out your your logging algorithm to make sure that your rule set that you have say in syslog ng is set correctly so it goes into your right queue to either spool onto another host or um you know go to the correct file um uh, or multiple files depending on what your your uh, requirements are so it's a it's a good look um you know using bash netcat logger all different things uh to um, achieve uh, testing from the command line. Mm-hmm. All right. Then we have a uh, practical guide to GNU grep with examples, even though you could use many of these without uh, with BSD grep as well. So uh, this goes into very detailed uh, options, what grep can do and what kind of output it provides, as well as a um, bigger or another mention of uh, alternative grab utilities right, like rip grab and how it compares and what kind of options it provides and so that's quite a good overview article if you really want to get into grab more deeply and know what it can do moving on to a github uh, article uh, freebsd container vm tools for podman this repository contains early, very work-in-progress scripts to build a VM image that can be used with Podman machine to manage FreeBSD VMs, initially on macOS, hopefully elsewhere eventually, to run FreeBSD containers on other operating systems. So briefly, the current status of this tool is the VM image can be loaded by Podman machine in it. User accounts for an ignition file provided by the host over the QEMU-FWCFG interface are created. SSH keys are provisioned. The network is set up. Podman is able to SSH into the guest. Host file systems are mounted. Note, this requires a, a some Podman bits that are not yet upstream. Podman service runs in the guest. Podman can connect to the service in the guest. This is currently done using a hack to symlink the socket to where Podman expects. Eventually, Podman should be taught to look in the right place. Uh, podman container and podman image commands work and what is still outstanding is test on x86-64 currently tested only on ARCH-64 Apple Silicon. A lot of the base system is unnecessary for the VM image, most kernel drivers, the tool chain and so on and a future version should install a smaller base. This does not prevent containers from including a full FreeBSD base system image. Then it goes through the usage of how to use uh, the tool uh, with some examples here. Uh, the future plans, many of the bits here need to be upstream to FreeBSD ports or the base system. Eventually, most of this repository should go away, but I wanted to get it to the state where it is actually usable first. Most of the 
Next step will require changes to Podman to decouple the how to create a VM extraction from the how to configure a Linux VM bit. These will probably also be useful for managing Windows VM with Podman if someone ever wants to do that. Notes, the current, this currently uses a patch version of OCI jail to build with CMake because Basil depends on OpenJDK, which does not appear to work on FreeBSD ARCH64. Hopefully this can be fixed at some point. The CMake build can be upstreamed. This version also builds its dependencies from ports, so should work with package audit if there are any vulnerabilities in the JSON parser. We currently provide an entire SSHD config to permit root login. This way you better to do this modification later or we risk failing to pick up changes to the defaults. Root login via SSH is safe here because the podman does not expose SSH login port except to the owner of the VM. VM is built from current at the moment so the containers for current and any release should work. At some point it's probably a good idea to default to building from 14.0 since most users probably don't want to run current containers there's less chance of breakage mm -hmm. all right good to know about these then we found an article on sharpwriting.net because <laughs> that's the name of the user or the author here uh, using certbot to create ssl certificates on freebsd and this is a straightforward way to get ssl certificates on freebsd using certbot you might notice a previous how-to from them described how to get a Cloudflare origin server installed on Apache, and why not just use that? Well, the Cloudflare origin server certificates are great if you use Cloudflare for your website. The downside is that unless you're communicating with Cloudflare, they are no better than a self-signed certificate. For email or other users of SSL, you may need to get a certificate from Let's Encrypt or elsewhere. Here's how to install the certificate and configure it for use with Apache, and they go through the steps that you need to do. OpenBSD's built-in memory leak detection. As announced on the MISC mailing list, Otto Morbeck, the author of OpenBSD's malloc implementation, aka Otto malloc, <laughs> has written a tutorial on the new malloc 3 leak detection available in OpenBSD 7.4. Uh, so there's a link to read it in the mailing list. Uh, since the publication of the writer, Otto has committed further enhancements and here's a log message from that enhancement. When option D is active, store callers for all chunks. This avoids the OXO call sites for leak reports. Also display more info on detected write of free chunks. Print the info about where the chunk was allocated and for the preceding chunk as well. Okay, yeah. more and more coming in OpenBSD in the security space, always good to know. Next up, also OpenBSD related, the WebSign issue number 15 is out over at websign.puffy.cafe. Uh, too long didn't read, goes OpenBSD 7.4 is out, as you have heard from last week's episode. Let's cover it like everyone else. Don't forget to read the upgrade guide, and a truly special WebSign issue will be released at the end of the month. Oh, yeah. So uh, the WebSign highlights the 7.4 release highlights. We did that in last week's episode, and um, yeah, in quite detail, actually, so you can... Uh, find the more condensed version here and uh, they also have artworks for the day or at the moment uh, nice puffy with network cables and the 7.4 stable changes good news everyone no day one patch a uh, sys patch is needed so everything seems uh, stable and uh, secure uh, going further 
the links include official OpenBSD 7.4 release announcements, the 7.4 release uh, on Undeadly announcement, introduction to SysClean, which uh, we covered earlier, and yeah, that's number 15 of the website. Moving on to a commit in FreeBSD ports. Uh, this is around security OpenSSL. It is a major version update to 3.0, which means OpenSSL 1.1.1 is end of life, update to the new LTS version, and aligns with the upcoming OpenSSL version in 14.0. And you can see here in the actual commit of what lines were affected and to get a bit of understanding of what's happened to this port during the upgrade. Okay, good to have a newer version of OpenSSL. Then we found a hardened FreeBSD script uh, on GitHub. The description is implementing a broad, cohesive group of hardening settings for FreeBSD. Any directive can be set, reset for administering, tuning in jails, Zen bleed workarounds, downfall info, and more. So you found uh, you find individual features, uh, making backup of rcconf, syscrconf, loginconf, and loaderconf on the first run. So good to have these. Sets passwords to Blowfish uh, to expire also at 120 days. Disables sendmail completely. Removes other write permissions from key system files and folders. Allows only root for cron and at jobs. Primitive flag verification catches simple errors. Modularizable within other tools. Uh, automating any shell script, system logging to varlock messages, and script logging to varlock hardened freebsd.log, and pretty prints color output of scripts execution to con console while it's running. Uh, also includes some desktop wallpapers and some other workarounds. So check out the individual nodes if you're interested in this kind of script. Uh, you may also probably cherry pick a couple of those and not apply all of them. And finally, up on the beastie bits is a Mastodon post by Stefano. Uh, today was something odd happened to me, slightly concerning, but which fortunately ended in a positive note and with deep reflection. They're doing some renovations in my office, so I sat down at a cafe table to work. I had with me my old HP laptop running FreeBSD. Ferrara is generally a peaceful city, but lately some groups of youngsters have been causing trouble, going around bothering people and extreme cases starting fights. Today it was my turn. As they roamed around trying to provoke others, two of them approached me and began touching my laptop. They mocked me, jesting, not so playfully, about how ancient my computer was and how they needed a computer. Picking it up and examining it, politely I told them that I needed it for work and that it had all my files, so I couldn't just hand it over. It was broad daylight, but no one else was around at that moment. One of them noticed something unusual. Where's the Windows menu? Is this Linux? No, it's FreeBSD. Have you ever heard of it? Their surprise expression said it all. The entire group gathered around, sat on the ground and listened to me intently for 15 minutes. I stalled, hoping for other people to arrive so I wasn't alone. Eventually, they got up and told me I was old, but cool, and that they would immediately try out the BSDs. They were particularly intrigued by OpenBSD security features, which they didn't grasp fully, but saw as a professional hacker stuff. They gave me a high five peacefully without bothering anyone further. Now I'm left wondering, did they leave me alone because they learned something intriguing from me because other people arrived or are they just 
bored teenagers causing issues to pass the time and got engrossed in something new, hence shifting their focus temporarily. All I know is I was relieved to get back to my office from there, hear the rain outside, which usually deters these boys from troubling others. I can say that today, FreeBSD saved me from very different problems than it usually does. Yeah, a great story. I mean, this sometimes goes really bad, especially when it's multiple against one. Um, but yeah, luckily it had a good turn for the world, for the best. And maybe, yeah, we have a couple of new BSD users in the, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of uh, getting around and causing trouble. Causing trouble, yeah. You can, might as well cause positive trouble. <laughs> hey, future committers. <laughs> yeah, right. Help other people a couple of things with their systems and tell other people about it. And so the BSDs get more known. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups. And Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. All right. Um, I think that's a good way to end this episode. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you for listening. Check out uh, our Telegram channel, t.me slash bsdnow is the address. If you want to reach out to us, then send us uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is the email address. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow. Thank you and see you next week. Yep. Till then. <laughs>